This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's special Connecticut Mirror event with Supreme Court reporter and analyst extraordinaire Linda Greenhouse. We'll be uh, talking about this momentous court term, and we'll be taking some of your questions in just a bit. I'm John Dankosky. I host events here at the Connecticut Mirror and also podcasts. You can check out our most recent podcast um, that I did with Mercy Quay, anywhere you find your podcasts. We would like to extend a special welcome to guests joining us tonight from other statewide nonprofit news publications, Spotlight PA, Mississippi Today, New Jersey Spotlight, and Vermont Digger. Thank you all so much for joining us. Linda Greenhouse is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter and essayist um, who's been covering the court for decades. And each year at this time, for the last few years, she's joined us to discuss the past, the present, and the future of the Supreme Court. So Linda, welcome back. Thank you so much for doing this for our Mirror readers and for all the readers across the country. Happy to be here, John. I'm a loyal CT Mirror reader myself. Well, we always appreciate you not only reading and supporting us, but also doing this for us. And boy, we've talked in the past at the end of important Supreme Court terms, but I don't think that we've ever seen anything that's this consequential, um, just draw dropping major announcements one after another on guns, on climate change, and of course, on, abor- on abortion rights. Before we get to these individual cases and what they mean to America right now, have you ever seen a term like this? I've seen some pretty exciting terms, but I've never seen one that is so profoundly unsettling of the way modern American society is organized with the assumption that women have reproductive freedom and as, a, as a matter of constitutional right. Um, I've never seen anything like this. When you use the word unsettling, it's it feels like it has a number of layers there. The one I, the layer I want to get at is just how much it stirs things up. the 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 court seems to have written here the, in the majority that this somehow has now settled an issue that has for long a long time been divisive in America, and it feels as though almost exactly the opposite thing has been done. It has been completely unsettled now. There is so much more to deal with because of this consequential ruling. Well, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing is chaos and misery. Now, you know, Justice Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, tells us in his opinion that we don't actually care what people think. Uh, But, you know, maybe (laughs) some of them do. And uh, chaos and misery, that about sums it up, I think. Again, before we dig too too deeply into this abortion case, what is different about the way that the court organized itself to take on these issues? You, you've you've talked with me in the past about the the Roberts Court having having particular plans or desires, things that they want to do. What happened this time that's different than what has happened in the past? Right. So. What we see is the working out of an agenda uh, that's been there for all to see. Uh, You know, we can't say we weren't warned. In fact, um, last summer at this time, I was finishing up a book project and the book came out in November. It's this past November, it was a, a, a chronicle 
of the term of the court with the three Trump justices, the, 19, the 2020, 2021 term that ended a year ago, early July of 2021. And I talked about in, in that book, uh, the cases that the court had agreed to decide, the cases that they accepted and what did they accept? They accepted the abortion case from Mississippi. They accepted the gun case from New York. They dealt around with a lot of voting rights issues. I mean, everything that happened this term really was forecast by the new dynamic when Amy Coney Barrett's nomination was rushed through as Americans by the millions were already casting their votes in the 2020 presidential election. And uh, she gave, of course, uh, gave us the super majority of one might say conservative, radical, pick your adjective uh, that we have on the court today, basically squeezing out Chief Justice Roberts, who seems like he was trying to keep a somewhat steady hand on things for the sake of the court's reputation and his own reputation, but he failed to be able to do that. Um, so that's what we have. We have um, a court that can basically now do whatever it wants in service of its agenda, and there's nobody on the court or off the court who can stop them. Looking back at the history of the Supreme Court as you've covered it, there's always been a sense that there's ideology, that there is agenda. Has it ever been quite like this in terms of it being so pronounced, let's say? Well, not in my time. I'm not going to say not in history. Of course, we know the great struggle between the very conservative Supreme Court of the 30s and FDR and, 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 that, and that crisis. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say, oh, my gosh, nothing like this has ever happened before. But when I first started writing about the court in the late 1970s and really through the 80s and into the really through the 80s and 90s, I, what what we took for granted about the court is that you couldn't look at the nine justices and predict how things were going to go because of which president appointed them. And this is the first time once Justice John Paul Stevens retired and he had been Gerald Ford's only Supreme Court nominee when he retired early in the Obama administration we had for the first time a court where all the conservatives were named by Republican presidents, all the more or less liberals were named by Democratic presidents. And so the public can look at the court and say, hmm, what's that about? And so the projection of the conservative agenda onto a basically unwilling public to the extent that the public has informed itself about this um, is something that we haven't seen in, I don't want to make a guess about your age, John, but I would say in our lifetimes, we have not seen this. The, the essay that you wrote in the wake of the abortion decision was titled, and understand that the, the writers of these pieces don't always get to write the headlines, but the headline oh, I wrote, was- I wrote that headline. I wrote the, that. The, the headline was Requiem for the Supreme Court. Those are strong words. T tell us more about what you mean. Well, the, the first- lines of that piece to which you're referring <clears throat> were, and it was about the Dobbs opinion, the, the, abortion, the uh, abortion opinion. 
They did it because they could, period, paragraph. It was as simple as that, period. Now, to be able to say that about a decision of the US Supreme Court, which I, to which I've devoted my professional life uh, studying and trying to understand, that really pulls down the curtain on the court that we knew. Because if you read the Dobbs opinion, and I <clears throat> certainly, I encourage people always to read Supreme Court opinions, you'll see that it's a mishmash of little bits of asserted history, this and that. The one, the, the two things it's not, it's not law and it's not anything about women. Women are invisible in that opinion. And you're just left scratching your head and there's no other explanation except that these five justices who joined that opinion did it because they wanted to and because they could, not because the constitution told them to do it, not because the public told them to do it. We knew the public by two to one is quite upset about this. Uh, they did it because they could. And that's why I came up with Requiem for the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court that we knew it is functionally over if this is the new reality. Women are invisible in the opinion is uh, without a doubt true. It also seems as though science is invisible in, in the opinion. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, for those of you who, who know me, my, my other job is I work with Science Friday, a national talk show that devotes itself to conversations about, about science and the scientific method and talking with scientists about, about the work. And that is certainly what we've been hearing from people in the science community. There's not a whole lot of science in here. Um, does it strike you um, in any particular way, Linda, that, that, you, that you could have an opinion that is so clearly about health, women's health, medical procedures, that seems to skirt around the idea of actually coming to any sort of scientific consensus, actually delving into the science of the issue at hand? Well, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I totally take what you're saying. I don't think the court necessarily had to get into, in, in, into science. What it totally failed to recognize as, let's say, medicine, Alito five or six times uses the word abortionist to describe providers of abortion care, right? That's a kind of a slur and is designed to stigmatize and carve abortion care out of basic health care for women, right? We know that um, some 35, 40% of all American women will have an abortion during their reproductive lifetimes. The ability to control their reproductive lives is essential to the way that women live in modern society. So not so much the science of fetal development. I, I didn't expect to see it there. I don't want these justices to be opining on the science of fetal development, but the failure to recognize that we're just talking about basic medicine, medical practice uh, was a little bit astonishing. And because of the lack of understanding of medical practice, it, it 
does seem to open up so many other potential issues that will come back to the court. And in this piece, Linda, you, you essentially say, look, this is not the last the court will be hearing of this because it, just off the top of my head, I was thinking about cases of, of, of rape and incest and of, of child pregnancies that I'm sure will be coming back up in American life uh, and perhaps coming back to the court, but also issues of in vitro fertilization of the very drugs that women use if they are miscarrying. These are all things that are put in specific jeopardy right now because of because of this ruling. And many of them have nothing to do with the sort of abortion that Sam Alito, I think, thinks he was writing about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole question of um, in vitro fertilization is very much front and center now because uh, states that declare that, uh, you know, a, a fertilized egg is a person within the meaning of the state's criminal law. Well, of course, in vitro fertilization involves fertilizing eggs and, and implanting them and having embryos basically left over. And the consequences of the notion that each little fertilized egg has the moral weight of, you know, you and me, um, people can think that it's a religious belief, uh, but we've got to label it as a religious belief. And that's what infuses the Supreme Court's opinion. In fact, uh, Alito takes pains to say, well, um, we're, we're talking about abortion, we're not talking about birth control, we're not talking about, you know, all these other um, <clears throat> personal rights that come under the, the flag of substantive due process. Abortion's different, he says, because it involves potential life. What he doesn't acknowledge is that's his religious belief. That's not everybody's belief. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's potential life in the fact that if, uh, if undisturbed and unmiscarried in many, many pregnancies, miscarries sometime, many before a woman even realizes that she's pregnant. So yes, potential, everything's potential. But to assign moral weight to that, uh, these five justices, uh, by saying abortion is different because of that, they're saying because that's what we believe. And our belief is now projected across the face of the U.S. Constitution. But, but it's also not entirely clear that, for instance, the, the issue of, of contraceptives as a legal right is settled. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, tells us it's all up for grabs. Absolutely. It, it's all up for grabs. And other things potentially are up for grabs, too. And I, I want to get to some questions in the Q&A function that people have specifically about this, this Dobbs decision. But uh, Clarence Thomas essentially seems to open up the, the possibility of coming after other rights, like same-sex marriage, something that has been enshrined for not that terribly long. Yeah, I mean, I have a few things to say about that. So, you know, it's nothing new for Clarence Thomas to say everything's up for grabs because he thinks everything is up for grabs. He's never accorded any weight to precedent. And he basically thinks that the Constitution went wrong in the 20th century. And, and his mission is to you know, call it out and, and, and get it back. I actually cannot imagine that the court would flatly overturn Obergefell, which is the 2015 decision that constitutionalized the right to same-sex marriage. And what the court is going to do and is in the process of doing is carving out as big 
a, a kind of carving a tunnel through that right uh, for religious individuals who don't accept the decision and who believe that legitimate marriage is only between a man and a woman. And so giving uh, business owners and, and other types of people who interact with the public the right to say, um, no, we're not going to deal with you. The court has taken such a case for the new term, a case called 303 Creative, which is brought by a woman a web designer who doesn't want to have to treat everybody who comes to her business uh, with equality. Um, so she doesn't want to have to create a wedding website for a same-sex couple, and she wants the right to announce this discriminatory policy on her website, which is in violation of the law, the anti-discrimination law of the state where she lives, which is Colorado. And the court accepted her case, even though she's not yet in the business and she doesn't have any customers. It's an abstract proposition, but she claims I'm a Christian and I can't put up with same-sex marriage. The court is, is going to hear that case. And that tells us that, that um, as many, <clears throat> as, as many exceptions to the notion of equality with respect to LGBTQ people, um, that's what's up for grabs. We do have a bunch of questions. Um, and some of them, many of them actually ha have to do with what states are now required to do at this point. Uh, Shira had written in, she says, now that SCOTUS has taken away our constitutional right to abortion, residents across the country have now been set to task to build uh, protections for state level abortion access. In Connecticut, how much of a priority, she asks, is it to enshrine our right to abortion access in our state constitution? Um, what are the chances of residents losing even more access to abortion care? So she's talking specifically about Connecticut, but I'm sure that this very much applies in some of the other states where people are, are joining us tonight. So Connecticut has been great on this. The Connecticut legislature has really been um, at the front lines of, of protecting the right in the state. Uh, and announcing, as I understand it, uh, I mean, don't, don't rely on me, but my understanding is <laughs> that um, there's language that would protect women, what I call abortion refugees, from states where abortion has been criminalized, are already coming to Connecticut, um, if, especially if they have, uh, you know, family here <clears throat> or some action state. They, they are coming, and and providers. There's a lot that's up in the air because some of these criminalizing states claim the right basically to um, to chase through legal process uh, women and providers in other states. And, you know, we have such a thing as the right to travel in the Constitution, or so we think. But the word travel is not in the Constitution, just like the word abortion is not in the Constitution. And somebody's got to test this really quickly and see whether uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who said in his concurring opinion, oh, don't worry, uh, you know, we're not going to have a regime of, of people being chased around uh, from red state to blue state, uh, whether there are five votes for that uh, guarantee. Uh, so far, I only count, you know, him. Uh, so that I know I know in the provider community, there's a huge amount of fear. Uh, for instance, Planned Parenthood in Montana has taken the, where, where, as I understand it, abortion is in the state constitution. So Montana 
is a legal state surrounded by criminalizing states. And they're saying, uh, we will not prescribe the abortion pill uh, for women from criminalized aid. Why not? Because they would come to Planned Parenthood in Montana, they would get the two pills, they would take the first one there in the clinic, they would go home and take the second one in a state where that's illegal and the providers are desperately afraid. So we need to, that we need a test case. We need somebody brave enough to bring a test case. And I'll just digress for a minute. I mean, here in Connecticut, so people may know Griswold against Connecticut, 1965, that was the case that established the constitutional right to birth control. So that uh, the, the Connecticut birth control prohibition had been challenged previously before 1965, but the Supreme Court had thrown the case out because there was no prosecution. There was no standing. The case wasn't ripe. <clears throat> so Estelle Griswold, who herself was not a doctor, she was the director of Planned Parenthood, the clinic in New Haven, uh, was had, had the clinic dispensing the pill and said, basically, come and get me. And they did. They came and got her, and that gave a concrete case that went up to the Supreme Court and established the right. So we're, we need to see something like that. It's easy for me to say sitting here in my little study, but um, we, we've, we've just got to figure out what, what kind of protection there's going to be for <clears throat> providers and for refugees. Yeah, and to that to that point, I mean, some questions getting Steve writes, we like to see civil disobedience to court decisions like the way Americans disregarded prohibition. Matthew writes, um, Linda said there's no one who could stop the radical majority in the court, but given that the court depends on voluntary acceptance of its power, uh, they have no power to act, only to speak. Could people just ignore them and thus gut the authority that the court relies on? That sort of gets to your earlier point. If if people just say, we're just not going to pay attention to whatever you say the law is, what does it mean? Well, <clears throat> well, to, to be clear at the threshold there, so... So the court has said there's no constitutional right to abortion. That doesn't mean abortion is prohibited. So that's up to the individual states. And we know that in half the states, abortion is going to be prohibited. <clears throat> so those states, those governors and attorneys general and prosecutors, they're going to you know, come out with guns blazing and, and, and prosecute. They're, they're, these are their laws. And so, uh, you know, and in the other states, in the Connecticut's of the world, uh, you know, protection remains. And so, and so I understand that question. It's not quite pertinent because uh, it's not that somebody in one of the criminalizing states would say, I'm going to defy the Supreme Court. There's law on the books that they would be defying, the, you know, state law, and, and they'll be putting themselves in great jeopardy. Um, we got another call here from Frank who asks, can you comment on the Florida Jewish rabbi's lawsuit on the basis of uh, the recent abortion decision and how it can conflict with Jewish belief that life only begins at birth? Yeah, well, it's interesting. So there was a, a congregation in Florida has sued the state of Florida uh, for its um, anti-abortion legislation, claiming that as a matter of free exercise, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which the current Supreme Court has beefed up enormously for Christians, uh, that uh, Jews have a constitutional right to act on their own belief 
that uh, life worthy of protection begins at some point, some say birth, but certainly not at fertilization. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that lawsuit is actually going to go anywhere, but I think it's very instructive and, and, and useful to, to realize it underscores the fact that there's one religious belief that has uh, underscored and, and, in my opinion, you know, created the anti-abortion regime that uh, the Supreme Court has propagated, only one in this very diverse country. And we ought to keep that in mind uh, as we proceed to talk about this. Uh, Barbara writes, the First Amendment secures the separation of church and state. However, it seems the court is moving to blur this line. How can this be stopped? Well, absolutely, the court is blurring this line. So uh, maybe we should we should broaden the frame here. The court had two very important religion cases in this last term. I mean, I regard I regard the abortion decision as a religion case, but that's just my view. Um, <clears throat> and in both of these cases, one of which involved channeling public money to pay for parochial school tuition, the case from Maine, and the other uh, that got a little more press than that uh, is the coach who wants to, who claim was given the right to uh, pray on the 50 yard line after a game uh, at a public high school. So in both of these cases, what the court relied on was the free exercise clause of the first amendment, which is one of two religion clauses. The other is the establishment clause. And it's the establishment clause that really um, uh, supports the separation of church and state. Uh, Congress shall make no law that establishes religion or prohibits the free exercise thereof. And uh, the court has basically written the establishment clause out of uh, First Amendment jurisprudence and is relying entirely on the free exercise clause. Now, ask yourself, had Coach Kennedy, the praying coach, been, for instance, a Muslim who went out to the 50-yard line and laid down a prayer rug and, and started praying to Allah, would the Supreme Court have ruled the same way? Just a question, just a curious, curious person wants to know. I want to uh, encourage people who are uh, listening and watching to get your questions to Linda in, using the Q&A function. We'll get to a bunch of them uh, throughout the course of the rest of our program, which is going very fast uh, for the next half hour or so. In the piece that we were talking about, Linda, that, that you wrote the Requiem for the Supreme Court, you, you cited and linked to your own reporting on the issue of abortion rights from back in 1970, perhaps one of the first times that this was written about at all in the New York Times. And, and I want to read a little bit about what you wrote. You said, a right to abortion. Such a notion at first hearing sounds fantastic, illusory. The Constitution is searched in vain for any mention of it. The very phrase rings of the rhetoric of a women's liberation meeting. It's a, it's a very, I, it, the whole piece, I really encourage people to read through because it's a very interesting glimpse into the time period. Could you just take us back to then, to 1970, and the question of abortion in American life before it got to the court? Yes. Yeah, so before Roe, abortion was criminalized in almost every state. At the time that I wrote that piece, I have to say I was a baby reporter. I mean, <laughs> maybe old, but I'm not quite that old. 
uh, <clears throat> it was the first major piece I ever wrote uh, for the Times, actually. Um, at that time, the New York legislature had just rejected an effort to decriminalize abortion by legislation. Uh, there was a, a, a movement in the country to, to do that, but it was floundering. And that's why people were turning to the courts. Right, very soon after that piece appeared in 1971, uh, the, the New York legislature by a single vote actually decriminalized abortion and cre it created a huge ruckus. And the Catholic church kind of rose up and the bishops demanded that the legislature repeal the repeal of the criminal abortion law. And the legislature did. The legislature crumped the next year and only the veto by Governor Nelson Rockefeller kept New York in the decriminalized column. So I just I went into that kind of detail to say that there are a lot of people, and unfortunately, uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of them, and she was not correct, that, oh, if only the court had stayed his hand or ruled in a less sweeping way, there was reform that was rolling across the country. Not true. Not true, because the church had gotten energized and was uh, fighting very hard against referendums in Michigan and other states. Um, and so there was a kind of a, I think what political scientists would call a legislative lockup. Um, the, the call for, for reform, I mean, I say in that piece, you know, women's liberation, that was the language of the times as you put out, as you point out, the actual, early calls for reform that led up to the 1970 ferment that I was writing about came actually not from women, but from doctors and especially from public health doctors. Uh, a woman named Margaret, uh, uh, sorry, Mary Calderon uh, was a very well-known public health doctor. And she wrote an article, appeared I think 1969 uh, in, in a professional journal that was entitled um, Abortion as a Public Health Crisis, because there were upwards of half a million, maybe a million illegal abortions a year in the country with um, very damaging consequences for women's health and, and even for their future fertility or for their lives. And so as the medical profession said, this doesn't make sense. Women are having abortions, there will be abortions, and we might as well decriminalize and bring it within uh, basic uh, healthcare, and 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 that was the that was the early impetus, and people aren't um, aren't too aware of that, I think. And I think it gets though back to the question I asked earlier about about how justices throughout the course of your career, but then also justices right now, actually have considered the science of the issue, the the what doctors and nurses and public health professionals are saying abortion is healthcare in America. It, it just is. It's, it's, that's not up for debate. And so what seems to be happening is them determining that it's not, that, that it's, that it's just not healthcare anymore for, for people. And that is making a, essentially a, a scientific declaration. They're essentially saying the science is wrong. Doctors aren't right. This is this is something that's different than women's health. That's a very strong point, John, and um, it, it really bears emphasizing because uh, 
because we know that that's not right. And, and uh, you know, there's currently about a million abortions a year in, in this country, maybe 900,000 uh, legal, safe. And uh, I'm here to say there's going to be hundreds of thousands of abortions, uh, you know, maybe not legal and not safe uh, going on. So um, the court has uh, talked us, backed us all into a very uh, retrograde corner here. There's a, a sort of a foundational question that David asks here. Are there any other decisions in which the court has taken away a constitutional right previously recognized by an earlier decision? Uh, the short answer is no. The longer answer is um, depends how you look at it. Yes, the court has taken away some, believe it or not, um, corporate rights over time. Uh, They've never taken away an individual right that certainly one that goes to the ability of individuals to be full participants in civil society. That's what this is about. And no, it's never happened before. Um, we have a question from Emma here. Thank you for this discussion. I'm a young woman currently pursuing my MPH and studying public health law. Do you have any advice for overwhelmed students of law? What can we do individually? What can we ask of our government? Thank you. It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah, you know, if, if, if I had known there was such a thing as uh, public health as a field, I really might have gone into it when, when I was in college. And so uh, I congratulate you. Um, what can people do? I mean, uh, advocate, uh, you know, vote. Um, at Yale Law School where I teach, there's uh, an entity called the Solomon Center, which is a joint venture between Yale Law School and the Yale School of Public Health uh, that brings together scholars in, in both disciplines to uh, really just get knowledge out there. Um, so I think anybody in public health has to be almost a public servant and certainly a public spokesperson for uh, evidence-based medicine. And, um, and I, I, I think that's part of the training these days and it's certainly essential in this, in this moment to have people like that. We're, we're getting more questions, of course, about, about the abortion decision, but there are other cases. You've already referenced a few uh, religion cases. Uh, Mary and a few other folks uh, would like your comment on the, the EPA decision uh, and the future of the administrative state. Uh, of course, this is a ruling that when I talked to the, at the top, Linda, about never seeing a court term like this that dealt with so many of the most pressing issues of our time, right? We've been hearing about what the court is going to do about abortion for, for decades. The court also took on guns, which we'll talk about in a second. But the court also weighed in on the EPA's ability, essentially, to control the gases that cause climate change, which is probably our biggest existential threat on the planet. And this is also a consequential decision that's perhaps a bit lost in everything else that, that happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a decision that kind of exists at the interface between the constitution and statutory interpretation. So, uh, so at the kind of simplest level, it was an interpretation by the court of uh, 
um, statutory framework of the Clean Air Act to be administered by the by the EPA. Um, it's been an accident waiting to happen for quite a while, uh, although a lot of it's been kind of uh, beneath the radar, but this was an exceedingly activist decision. Why do I say that? It's because the Biden administration had, had yet to actually issue a rule. So the court reached out and invalidated the EPA's uh, ability to kind of write broadly um, dealing with coal-fired plants and, and alternative energy sources and so on to write broadly before it actually had a target in the, in the sense of there, there's no rule, the rulemaking is ongoing. So it was, the, the court wanted a case like this to put out this major question theory uh, and basically turns the issue over to Congress. And of course we see in Congress, I just read in the paper today, the Senator Joe Manchin Democrat of West Virginia says uh, he's he's not he's not all in for um, incentives for electronic vehicles for electric cars, uh, and of course the reason is that the people who give him money are the fossil fuel people from West Virginia. So um, we've got another legislative lockup. The court decision doesn't in any way hamper Congress from saying here's the policy and here's what we want the EPA to do but the court ruled in the knowledge that Congress doesn't have the ability now to do that. But, but, but isn't the nature of the regulatory agency in America that it is acting as part of the executive branch, that it is acting not with the oversight of Congress for every single decision it makes? I mean, how, how broad potentially is this beyond this uh, EPA ruling and what it means for environmental protection, what it means for clean air. What does this mean for regulatory agencies writ large? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think what it means is if a regulatory agency does something that um, uh, gives a majority of the current Supreme Court some policy concern, they're going to say, oh, that's a major question. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry to laugh, but that, I mean, again, I just, I, not being a constitutional scholar, uh, Linda, I was like, I, that's not the court's job, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I mean, the court's <laughs> job is to police the boundaries between, yeah. you know, uh, uh, among the branches. And, you know, we, we get that. But they've launched this major question doctrine <clears throat> without, excuse me, <clears throat> without really defining it or, or telling us what is a major question other than it's what five of us don't like that an agency did. I hate to sound so, you know, flip or cynical, but there's nothing in that opinion that really gives us anything to, to, to hold on to, uh, to predict what happens for the next case and the one after that, uh, except that we know that <clears throat> the court is going to put the agencies on a very short leash. And what the court says is what is, is how their power is going to be constrained. Uh, of course, on the flip side, I will say that that I think many people in America might say that some regulatory agencies and some regulatory decisions uh, don't act in the best interest of the large uh, majority of Americans. <laughs> and mightn't it be a good thing for the court to weigh in uh, 
in this way, seeing as how Congress probably isn't going to do do anything about it, right? It's 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 not like these decisions all just necessarily flow one one direction. Uh, regulatory agencies during the Trump administration did an awful lot of things the Democrats didn't like too. The court for several decades has had something called the Chevron Doctrine. People may have heard about this. That makes a great deal of sense. And what it says is that if the agency's interpretation of its power is plausible, then we, the judiciary, defer to the way the agency deploys its power. It makes a lot of sense. Um, And so, you know, that gives the court the running room to look at the underlying statute and say to the agency, hey, you're you're off in the the woods here. Um, But this major question thing is kind of an overlay on, on that that seems to give the court, the court has helped itself to power uh, to go beyond that uh, kind of foundational determination. Uh, is the agency acting within the authority that Congress gave it to say, do we like or do we not like what the agency is actually doing? Um, I mentioned, of course, the the third of these major issues that's at the heart of American life right now, uh, guns and gun rights. Uh, another consequential 6-3 decision struck down a New York gun law, essentially uh, making it clear that Americans have the right to carry firearms in public for self-defense. Can you tell us a little bit, bit about what you saw in this ruling and maybe did you see this coming for a while? Oh, yeah. So uh, it had been... Um... I guess, 14 years since the Heller decision in 2008, the court had not, that, that's the, the uh, case in which the court for the first time interpreted the Second Amendment to convey an individual right, an individual right to what Heller was to keep a handgun at home for self-defense. So there have been many efforts since then to get the court to broaden Heller. Uh, the gun lobby was quite dissatisfied with Heller, didn't go far enough. And so uh, we had several justices, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, complaining, oh, the Second Amendment has become a second class right because we're not taking any of these cases. So in the spring of uh, last year, 2021, uh, the term that I wrote my book, Justice on the Brink, about, I talk about the court uh, finally taking a gun case. And once they agreed to take it, the outcome was totally predictable. I mean, the, the, the key decision point in that case was, uh, was taking the case, taking the NRA back challenge to the New York gun licensing law, uh, a law that was shared by maybe half a dozen other, other states. Um, so, you know, what, what uh, Justice Thomas, of course, wrote that opinion, uh, said was, well, we, we look at history. I mean, it, it, it makes very little sense because of, in history, of course, the, in the framing generation, people were walking around with muskets, you know, not with the kind of uh, weaponry that we have today, but we'll leave, we'll leave that aside. It, it was a, a case with a foreordained conclusion. And so what's kind of interesting right now is uh, what happens next. And so uh, the New York legislature immediately uh, kind of took the majority up on what it offered because what it offered in, in 
that case was, well, of course, we don't mean that uh, someone has a right to walk around with a concealed weapon anywhere. There are sensitive areas where they can't. So the New York legislature passed uh, passed a, a, a post-SCOTUS law uh, identifying the a, a big bunch of areas that are deemed sensitive. And of course, uh, yesterday, uh, two individuals backed by the gun lobby uh, filed federal district court lawsuits challenging those restrictions. And so in no way are we done with this, uh, you know, and the, the week that the court accepted the case back in the spring of 2021, I think there had been two major gun massacres in the prior week and that did not cause them to stay their hand. So here we are. Yeah, and and the ruling comes down. Yeah, in the in the midst of of more of more gun massacres, the, there are in America there are limits on what type of weaponry you can carry, when, and and where. I guess the the larger question is when you say that this isn't over by a long shot, th- does this mean that the the possibility of more rights to carry more types of weapons in more places will be be given across the country? Well, it depends on what there's five votes for, you know. Um, and if does Congress have any willingness to go beyond what it, it did and, uh, you know, reinstate the uh, the ban on what was it on machine guns and different kinds of, you know, major small arms um, that existed for about 10 years and then expire, was allowed to expire about 10 years ago. And I've seen data that suggests that during the time when it was in effect, there actually were fewer of, of these mass shootings. Um, you know, does the court hear this? Does the court interested in knowing about this? I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's see. We have some other questions here I want to get to. I also have to ask you a question and it's less of a question. I'm just going to throw out a name and I'm going to say discuss. So Linda Greenhouse, Ginny Thomas, could you just talk about Ginny Thomas? The, the, the idea of a wife of a Supreme Court justice who's so clearly involved in, in politics. I've asked you a number of times, have you ever seen anything particularly like this? I'm just wondering if you have any analogs from your past coverage. Is there anything that you've seen like this? And what happens, do you think, with the wife of Clarence Thomas? I've never seen anything like it. It's pretty astonishing. And I think nothing happens. You think nothing happens? Who's going to make anything happen? Is, and and there's, no, there's no precedent for anything like this for anybody to point to. No, there's not. There, you know, she hasn't broken any laws. I mean, uh, I, I don't. I don't see any way to, um, you know, curb her, her instincts or her behavior. Has there ever, though, been a question of somebody close to a Supreme Court justice who potentially poses a conflict of interest in issues that are going to come before the court? It, it seems fairly clear that something coming out of, say, the January 6th hearings may very well appear in front of the Supreme Court of the United States at some point while while Clarence Thomas is there. Yeah, then it's up to Justice Thomas to um, decide what to do about it. But um, 
But you asked me about Ginny and, uh, you know, she's a free agent. That's I, I that's that's fair enough. And a, and a good <laughs> and I think exactly the, the right answer. Uh, Mary asks, is there any hope for a nonpartisan Supreme Court in the future or has it just become another political entity? Well, um, <clears throat> I have a baby granddaughter and I have told my daughter that it's going to be up to uh, baby Lucy's generation to uh, to fix this. Uh, nothing's going to change very soon, I think. Um, you know, obviously a lot of this resides with the confirmation process and the power game that's played on Capitol Hill and the relationship between the president and the Senate at any point in time. But um, I think we've gone pretty far down the road, certainly in the last, with the last three appointments. Um, uh, one of the first, of course, uh, Neil Gorsuch sitting in the seat that should have gone to Merrick Garland when President Obama was in office. Um, I don't see a way of climbing out of the hole that we're in, actually. One thing that that many people uh, on the progressive side of the Democratic Party have suggested, and there have been some uh, pieces of legislation put forward to, to this effect, is that while the Democratic Party has a majority, that they should attempt to expand the Supreme Court. I think you and I have talked about this before. I guess I'm wondering about that. Is that possible? How would it work if it were to happen? Well, I don't think it's politically possible. <clears throat> There's not a majority. There's not a filibuster-proof majority uh, in the Senate or, or I think, not, not necessarily a majority in the House to, to do it. It's within Congress's power. The Constitution leaves it completely up to Congress to set the number of justices. So, there's no, um, you know, theoretical objection to it. Is it a good idea? Um, you know, not necessarily because it just becomes a kind of an arms race. And, you know, if there were a political moment when <clears throat> one party held two houses of Congress and the White House and they wanted to add justices and the pendulum swings the other way and the next but, party. But isn't it already an arms race? I mean, that's, it seems as though that's the point. And it, it, you, we've already gotten to the point at which the, the most important thing, perhaps, that a new administration can do, certainly if it has the support of the Senate, is to seat Supreme Court justices. And so in some ways, it's become a political arms race already. Well, that's true. Um, you know, we're not going to have to deal with it because it's not going to happen. But I think one objection to it, if, if you were that nominee for whom a new seat had been created so that you would cancel out uh, the quote stolen seat or whatever, um, you'd really be in the spotlight. You'd really have a lot of water to carry for your, for, for uh, you know, the, the, those who brung you to the dance and um, I don't know. It makes me a little uneasy the the, the thought of it, but I, you know, I, I respect people who some very smart people are are persuaded that that this is the way to go. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't argue with them. It just has never struck me as um, as really any any kind of answer. And as you say, not not politically possible. Certainly at the moment. Um, Henry writes, um, could you comment on the obligation, if any, for the court to respect the majority opinions of the people? Well, you know, that's a tricky question because, of course, uh, when 
those times when the court has stood up for minority rights, we have tended to applaud that, uh, where the court hasn't just sort of followed majority will. So um, I think it, 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 it's a nuance. It's got to be a nuanced answer to, to a question like that. Should the court be aware in a kind of general sense of where the public is? Yes. I think for the kind of stability of the system, if not just for the institutional welfare of the Supreme Court. And I think their court's in very tricky territory right now. Um, but do we want them just to kind of put their finger in the wind and you know, take their own polls and do what a majority of people seem to want them to do? Um, I would kind of hope not. I mean, I look back not that many years, well, I guess it's 20 years now after 9-11. Uh, you know, certainly a majority of the public at that time, I think, would have basically looked at, at the, the prison in Guantanamo uh, and, and said, yeah, whatever, go right ahead. And it was the conservative Supreme Court that put some brakes on that and accorded some constitutional rights to the men who were being held there. And, uh, you know, I kind of cling to that in my mind as something that I witnessed that very close range where I thought the court uh, really stood up for the, for, for, for the best of American society, even though American society had, had you taken a poll at that time would have said, you know, forget those, forget those guys. But, but that's not that long ago. We can remember it pretty clearly. And as, as much as it seems in this moment that we could, as, as you write, Linda, write a requiem for the Supreme Court. Is, is there a way that we get, get back to that? I mean, is it, is it just so purely partisan right now that we can't imagine a Supreme Court that can act in such a way? Well, looking at, you know, this last term and looking ahead to the next one, which promises uh, even more disruption of our voting process and so on. Um, I wish I could say, oh, yeah, it's all going to be OK. But I actually I have great concerns about it. We, 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 we had a couple of people asking before we run out of time. What are the major cases that they're going to be taking up next term? Well, there's two major voting rights cases. Um, one really goes to the constitutionality of what's left of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That's a case from Alabama. And then there's uh, people may have heard about this um, independent state legislature case from North Carolina, which goes to the question of whether state Supreme Courts have any role in uh, setting the, the rules for the conduct of elections or whether it's just up to the legislature. Very important case. So, I mean, there are a bunch of other big cases too, but I think we're out of time and I just urge people to pay attention to, to those as, as we uh, come up to the next election cycle. Linda Greenhouse, it's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for your insight and for answering all these questions um, from me and from all the folks uh, at the Mirror and from around the country. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank everyone who joined us, not just from the Connecticut Mirror, but also from Spotlight PA, Mississippi Today, New Jersey Spotlight, and Vermont Digger. All of these organizations are growing and they're trying to give you more news that you need about your state, where you live. Uh, and some of the important issues uh, that face America right now. Please consider supporting nonprofit 
independent journalism, wherever it is. If you want to support the Connecticut Mirror, it's very simple. You go to ctmirror.org. You can click on the big red button at the top of the page. You're not just supporting the work that we're doing right now, but you're supporting the growth of the Mirror. We've been hiring a lot of new reporters. We're hiring new editors. We're trying to do an awful lot of things that haven't been done in Connecticut media and for uh, well, for quite some time. And so if you do want to support us, again, it's connecticutmirror.org. Click on that donate button and you'll help Connecticut Mirror to grow. Thanks so much to our publisher, Bruce Putterman, to Kyle Constable, who produced this and all of our events, and to our executive editor, Beth Hamilton. Thank you so much. 